the Panhandle News Network. The views and opinions on this station do not necessarily represent the Panhandle News Network, WEPM and WCST, or West Virginia Radio Corporation. Here we go! Welcome to Panhandle Live on WEPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Panhandle Live is brought to you by Sutton and Janelle Attorneys at Law. Visit their new location at 224 West King Street, Martinsburg, and online at suttonandjanelle.com. Here are your hosts, Jordan Nicewarner and Marsha Kabalik. It is Monday the 17th. You're tuned in to Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton & Janelle, full-service law firm serving West Virginia and Maryland, helping individuals, families, businesses with all of their legal needs. Family law, criminal defense, DUI, personal injury, mediation, they provide legal counsel tailored to your needs. Visit their new historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street and always online at SuttonAndJanelle.com. I'm Jordan Ice Warner. Alongside me is Marsha Kavalik. Marsha, good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you? Good. How was your weekend? Uh, it was too, too um, quick. <laughs> it's all, they're always too quick, especially when the uh, weather gets out, uh, as it has been. Um, have you noticed any cicadas? No, not yet. I have think, you? I think I started to hear them over the weekend. Ooh. I was down uh, Virginia Way a little bit, and I think I started to hear them. So that, that was a little uh, concerning, I I've guess. I've heard people say that they've seen them in Winchester. And by the way, that um, interview we had with Dr. Jim Siegel is on our Panhandle Live Facebook page. We've gotten a lot of... Um, feedback from that uh someone that i know is like i was riding my bike i was listening to the show and heard that really positive asking uh if we can get dr jim back well it was a conversation that i thought was going to be interesting but i didn't think it was going to be that interesting he's really good talking about uh you know just bugs and how they're coming back to life for the first time in what like 17 years right uh but yeah you can catch that over on our facebook page over at panhandle live but bringing our first guest uh, on to the show is berkeley and morgan county health department's nursing director angie gray angie how you doing this morning i'm doing great jordan how are you and marcia today we're good have you seen any cicadas yet i haven't and i actually live in the country and i remember 17 years ago when they were here so right i'm like not ready for them this they, year i did see a video uh, i'm not <laughs> sure where it was on the east coast but a video of all of them in somebody's yard coming out of the ground and it looked like <gasps> oh, the most terrifying apocalyptic thing. it was awful to look at <laughs> well i mean they're they're coming so dr jim said they're coming we can just expect them but they even if they get in your hair they're not going to bite you that's what i hear so that's comforting yeah it's always a good thing so um so nurse angie is with us because uh we we wanted kind of a, a wrap up of the mega vaccine clinic the the mega drive-through vaccine clinic at the campus of charlestown races so how did that go and i'm sure you got some some numbers for us etc yeah um it went great i mean of course um still using community partners i always say we're only as strong as the number of community partners that we have, um, you know, one team taking care of the community. Um, of course, when we were at the rec center, the health department was the lead, and many community partners um, supported us, along with one of our large community partners, WVU Medicine. And then when we moved to the casino, being a regional approach, WVU Medicine took the lead, um, and we supported them, and as well as the National Guard uh, supported us there. The Hollywood Casinos was a gracious host. Um, things went very well. I think approximately there was about 18,000 vaccinations given of the five weeks running two days a week at the casino. Um, and that included, you know, 
um, what we call prime first doses and boost second doses. Now, was that as many people as you were expecting to vaccinate, or was that more or less than anticipated? I think that the governor's leadership team at the state level was, um, you know, expecting more, hoping for more, as, you know, we all know we need to get towards shorted immunity. Um, but, you know, it was out there. We ran late hours, uh, made it very accessible. So, you know, we we vaccinated as many people that, you know, came to us. So it was more, you know, it's still, you know, 18,000 plus more people uh, who are, well, probably half of that with the boost, but um, that are vaccinated. And now, of course, with um, Pfizer decreasing to 12 uh, to 15-year-olds, um, that'll help us get even more people vaccinated. And they did see um, some 12 to 15-year-olds on the last day at the casino on Thursday as um, the FDA and ACIP approved that on Wednesday, um, the day before the last clinic down there. Let's drill down on some of that um Angie Gray is with us. She is a nur- the nursing director for Berkeley Morgan County Health Department. So what are the next steps for folks in the community if they have not gotten vaccinated? What's their outlet now? So they will still continue. We'll still partner as we have been with WVU Medicine and the health department. They will still contact um, either the call line or go um, to the link and schedule their appointments. We are still doing those on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We'll be doing them at the health department, at the Berkeley County Health Department on 122 Waverly Court um, from 9 to 4 currently. Now, that could change as numbers decrease or increase, of course. You know, we're always adapting um, as the need in the community uh, shows us where we need to go. Um, So anybody who is due for their second doses that went to the casino, they'll be getting contacted if they haven't already. Um, by WV Medicine with the scheduling system that they set up and be given a new location um, at the health department to get their um, second dose of vaccine. And then anybody who wants, uh, that hasn't started vaccination yet and has decided that they want, they can do the same thing um, and we'll see them at the health department. So how about our listeners in Jefferson County and Morgan County? So Morgan County, I can speak for that as we cover both counties. We are one health, uh, health department with two sites. Um, Morgan County transitioned out of their community um, events a little sooner, of course, lower population. So all of them have been rerouted already to the health department, and all of the, the boost doses have been given. Anybody wanting a new dose, just call the health department there. It's 304 258 um, 15, 13, and um, if they don't answer because they could be in clinics or, or vaccinating, just leave a detailed message with your name and phone number and that you want to get the COVID vaccine, and they'll call you and schedule you right in the health department to get that done. As far as Jefferson County, I know they are going to continue. Um, I, I'm not over that, so I'll just speak a little bit of what I know about Jefferson County. I know that they were, are going to continue scheduling the same way um, through WVU Medicine. Um, and I'm not sure where their sites will be that they'll be continuing to vaccinate. We're on the phone with Berkeley and Morgan County Health Department's nursing director, Angie Gray. Now, the hot topic right now in terms of COVID is the mask mandates being lifted, uh, well, the CDC lifting them for vaccinated people. Do you have any guidelines, some tips, maybe uh, looking forward through all these different uh, mask mandates being lifted for people that are vaccinated or for people that aren't vaccinated? Yeah, so I know that'll get confusing as well, you know, as we shift in the waves of the pandemic and who knows what will happen. We can't predict next winter and if we'll need to go back to that or not. 
I think it's important to know that it is, you know, whether the mask mandate is lifted or not, it is still personal choice. Many of us were wearing masks before the mandates went in because we knew of the, you know, positivity rates in our counties, and we, you know, weren't sure, um, you know, when we could take them off if you were fully vaccinated. So I think the positive thing here is saying, you know, the vaccine is working. It's working well. Um, if you're vaccinated, it's an actual incentive, I think, to get vaccinated. Then if you're, you can, if you're fully vaccinated, you can take your mask off. Now, using some common sense, if you're in a large crowd or uh, that, you know, you don't know who is being, has been vaccinated, I would probably still choose to wear my mask. And then, of course, certain entities like healthcare and things, you know, we're still going to wear them even if we're fully vaccinated. Most of us, um, when we're given direct patient care, because we don't always know the status of somebody's vaccination. Um, but at least, you know, there's, there's signs showing the vaccine is working. It's working well. Um, this is a step forward. Um, to us getting those masks off, everybody wants them off. You know, they're not comfortable. I know I've been 27 years in nursing, and we wear masks a lot in healthcare for all kinds of other um, infections and diseases. So, um, and then it's getting summer's coming. It's going to be warm, which is a great thing, and then the masks get hot. So I think it's still, you know, use common sense if you're in an area with a lot of people, even if you're inside in the small um, environment with a, with uh, many people in a meeting or something, and you don't know that it might still be, um, you know, worth wearing your mask. And also, we have to think about the variants changing. Yeah, because this ma- the mask mandates being lifted aren't uh, pretty much like a get out of jail free card. Like everybody can take their masks off and go do whatever they want as long as they say, you know, they're vaccinated, right? Right. I mean, because you know, how if I'm out in a public place, how am I going to know who's who has been vaccinated? So I would want to still be cautious. Um, you know, especially, like I said, with the other variants, you know, we have the African, the Brazilian and, you know, the Indian and now and we have seen some of them in our area um, just not predominantly being spread. Um, so you want to be cautious because we don't want those to become the predominant strains because then we, you know, as the that, as the virus changes and, and uh, it then we could get to a place where, you know, the vaccine needs to change and you won't have as much protection. So, um, like I said, pretty much common sense. Still, uh, you know, you know, good hand washing. I always say that even back when I'm talking about influenza, and, you know, flu season. Stay home if you're sick um, so you're not exposing people. And one thing with the mask that we learned is, you know, our influenza rates um, severely dropped in this country. Um, over the winter. So it did not only help with COVID, it helped with other respiratory um, things that are past communicable diseases. So, Is the guidance still the same? Um, you know, because we're seeing fewer active cases here in the panhandle and uh, the severity of, of cases anecdotally seems to be less, um, you know, if you don't consider some of the, the strains. Are people still, are you guys still contact tracing the same way that you have been? Yes, yeah, so we are still contact tracing, case investigating. Um, last October through December, that became uh, very tough that, you know, when you were getting 100 cases a day with the amount of people that are trained to contact trace, it was just was not feasible, and we saw that all over the country. So just even trying to get a, an initial call with some quarantine guidance and what to do was a priority. And then 
after we started giving vaccine and we saw numbers uh, starting to drop and, you know, we really got our elderly protected, which was great. Um, then, you know, our caseload started getting back to where you could actually do public health intervention. Um, so we're still working the cases, still um, contact tracing. And with the variants, when we identify somebody with a variant, then, you know, it's, it's a strict 14-day quarantine because we really want to stop the spread of that variant getting widely out in our communities. Um, so, yes, that is still happening. The reporting um, requirements are still the same. None of that has changed. Is the quarantine uh, length shorter than for standard issue coronavirus contact or more casual contact? Well, the CDC put out some different options uh, several months ago. Um, so some of them are if you get tested one day like five or six and you're negative, um, then it could be a shorter quarantine. Um, some is 10-day quarantine versus the 14 but like I said, the variance is still the strict 14-day quarantine um, for contacts. And that is pretty much individual-based. You have to look at the person, where they are, what, you know, where they work, you know, how vulnerable, vulnerable the people are around them and that type of thing. And then that decision is made on those options of quarantining. We're on the phone with Berkeley Morgan County Health Department's nursing director, Angie Gray. So with the mask mandates being lifted, I did hear, uh, and of course you are the person that is, you know, making the laws and the mandates and whatnot. Um, But do you see this as just a, you know, we're getting into summertime and more people are vaccinated. So let's just kind of pull the curtain and let everybody go back to their normal lives to jumpstart things. Or do you think this is actually going in direction with the vaccines being put out and showing that uh, for the most part they're working? Do you think this is kind of, uh, I guess, the light at the end of the tunnel we've been looking for for a year and a half now? Yes, the latter. <laughs> um, I think it is the beginning of the light. Like I've said early on, there is with vaccine, there is light at the end of the tunnel. It is still a very long tunnel. We still are in pandemic status, um, and, you know, that's a global uh, effort. You see what's happening in India right now. I mean, it's pretty sad um, for that country, and I think they're finally starting to get some more vaccine there from what I've read. Um, and then just one correction is we are not the people who actually put in the guidelines or mm-hmm. the laws, the codes. We're the people that have to, on the ground, try to help people understand them and comply with them. So that happens at a, at a state and a federal level, and then we comply with that as well. Um, and I know the governor has talked about June 20th, potentially, for people who aren't vaccinated. I know he was looking at summer anyway because it would be safer outside, more space, you know, more airflow, um, sunlight, all of those things. But like I said, it's a, in a pandemic, you have to look at each moment in time where we are, um, you know, shift and change. And then sometimes we'll keep going forward. Sometimes we may go backwards. So it's, it's all in what we do. Um, you know, each individual has their own responsibility. But when you look at it, what each individual does really does affect all of the population and our health. Um, so we just, uh, as we see and watch it, then we keep changing and adapting and that's the best we can do to try to protect everyone. Joining us on the phone, Berkeley Morgan County Health Department's nursing director, Angie Gray. Thanks for calling in this morning and giving us an update, especially on the mega vaccination clinic, because I know we talked about it a ton, the lead up, and then it seemed like, uh, and then of course you confirmed that it was a good thing for the area and it definitely got a lot of people vaccinated. Absolutely. And, you know, thanks to the community for coming. I know the regional, um, 
vaccination is a little tough because people tend to have to drive a little further and that kind of thing. And I still, I want to just can't say enough, the community partners, um, all the dedicated people that are behind the scenes that people don't even know that takes to pull off these type of things and really serve our community. So um, Berkeley County has some really talented and dedicated people. And even our, you know, our community, our churches, our businesses, our individual community people, when we were at the rec center, made sure that there were meals for everybody that was working every day. We didn't even have to think about that. I mean, that is huge. You know, Martinsburg um, PD was there every day um, helping with the traffic and um, the city and the county. Um, we just had so much support from them as, as well as other healthcare entities. Um, and again, WV Medicine has just been amazing. So I just want to, you know, thank our whole community because it really does um, take the community uh, efforts to take care of our community. Again, Berkeley Morgan County Health Department's nursing director, Angie Gray. Thanks for calling in this morning and giving us an update on all that. Now, and when, you know, news begins or continues to unravel, feel free uh, to call in if you have any more updates. Absolutely. Okay? Well, thank you, Jordan and Marsha. Thank you for always helping us get our message out and a clear message and keeping our community, um, you know, informed. Absolutely. Thank you again, Angie. Again, that's Angie Gray, Berkeley Morgan County Health Department's nursing director. And stick around. We have more here on Panhandle Live on WPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Live and local, it's Panhandle Live with hosts Jordan Nice Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back to Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton and Janelle, full-service law firm serving West Virginia and Maryland. This is their new historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street and always online at suttonandjanelle.com. If you missed the first, uh, our first guest for today was Berkeley Morgan County Health Department's Nursing Director, Angie Gray, who gave us an update on the mega vaccination clinic and all the changing events that are always happening uh, when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. And after the show, you can always listen back over on our Facebook page. But uh, coming up after the next break, here in a few minutes. It's going to be local author Ed Maliskis, uh, who is the author of From John Brown to James Brown. And Marsha, have you heard about this story at all before? No, this will be new. And I, I hadn't heard about it until you brought it up that you were bringing him on the show. Oh, so well, that's really cool. Well, I've heard kind of, uh, I guess, small notes of this story for a couple of years now. Uh, and I'll be interested to hear um, his uh, take on it because he is pretty much the expert on it right now. But it's a lot to do uh, with, of course, um, the Civil War and Civil Rights and uh, music here in the Panhandle and uh, surrounding areas. So stick around. That'll all be coming up here in just a few minutes on Panhandle Live on WEPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. It's Panhandle Live, the voice of the Panhandle. Here are your hosts, Jordan Nicewarner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back to Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton and Janelle, full-service law firm serving West Virginia and Maryland, helping individuals, families, businesses with all of their legal needs. Visit their new historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street and always online at suttonandjanelle.com. I'm Jordan Ice Warner. Alongside me is Marsh Kavalik. And joining us in studio is author of James Brown, or John Brown to James Brown. It's Ed Maliskis. Ed, how are you doing this morning? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, I've kind of heard about this story off and on, uh, I'm, I'm going to assume from you before I knew it was from you, for a while now. And it has to do with, you know, Western Maryland and the Panhandle together because it's all happened in and around Harper's Ferry with John Brown's farm, right? Uh, indeed. Yeah. So, 
So what is kind of some of the backstory from, because uh, this farm has been inhabited, I guess, from what, the 1800s all the way until now or the 1900s? Yeah, so this is the place where John Brown, for three and a half months in the summer of 1859, trained his troops for the raid on Harper's Ferry. So they almost pulled that off. Mm-hmm. His, his goal was to set up a, a, like a republic within a republic in the hills of Virginia and just call uh, slaves to run away and join him. And ultimately, if enough slaves ran away, it would undermine slavery as an economic system. It mm-hmm. wouldn't make sense to buy a $100,000 slave and have him run off. Right. So um, we're coming out of World War I, and uh, the black community had been made promises that the civil rights legislation would be forwarded, and then some of the worst racial incidents in our nation's history, the Tulsa race riots, happened. So when, as World War II came around, there was a big debate in the black community whether to participate or not. Mm-hmm. And the black newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier, was a leader in the double V campaign. Let's go get the victory over tyranny in Europe. We'll come back, and this time we'll get uh, our, our dues here. And when they came back, they found that that was not true. The Southern senators were uh, filibustering all of the civil rights legislation coming out of the House of Representatives, and the largest fraternal organization, the IBPOEW, the Black Elks, uh, a lot of middle-class blacks. So it would have been uh, Bojangles Robinson, Martin Luther King Sr., Adam Clayton Powell, uh, Thurgood Marshall, a mm-hmm. number of prominent black people were Elks. And they had a legal department. And so they saw, look, if this is really going to happen, it's going to be on us. It's going to be blood, sweat, and tears from the black community. Nobody's going to do this for us, clearly. And so they looked for inspiration. And they looked at John Brown. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois had written a biography of Brown that was very complimentary. And uh, the typical black um, educated person in mid-20th century probably regarded John Brown ahead of Abraham Lincoln as far as who did the most to end slavery. Right, because that was going to be one of my questions is why, you know, rural at that time, well, I guess at that time it was Maryland, uh, but why John Brown's farm? It seemed like uh, such a, you know, random place. Of course, if you look at it in terms of the history, it's not a random place, but to somebody uh, that doesn't know the history, it's like, oh, this farm, you know, tucked into a hill, you know, around Harper's Ferry. Uh, why would they pick that place? Yeah, it's just as a standalone historical place. It's important, but it's not gigantic, but it right. has become gigantic. So the, the Elks make that their spiritual and logistical headquarters at the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement. So they buy the place in late 1948, just months after President Truman integrated the armed services. And uh, they begin having gigantic meetings of their own and their strategies for constitutional awareness, for voter registration, uh, uh the, the right to vote, uh, literacy programs, on and on. They're a nationwide organization. And this was all happening at this lodge? Yes. Yes, it was the virtual headquarters for the Elks in the late 1940s. So they began having these gigantic meetings, thousands of, I would say, big shots in, nationally in the black community. And uh, there's a group of Harvard authors who were surprised to find out they to find out how important these fraternal organizations were. They said, we knew about the clergy, we knew about students, but we really missed this piece. And they concluded, finally, that without the activities of these black elks, the civil rights movement would not have even been possible. Wow. So, so is this property still standing? Is it still under the same ownership? It's Well, it's not, but it's, it's in wonderful shape considering. So the farmhouse has been renovated. It still needs some more work. But it looks very much like it did back in John Brown's day. And where is it located in it, particular? Well, if, if your listeners have a, some sense of geography, it would be halfway between Harper's Ferry and Antietam Battlefield, tucked over on the Maryland side of the Potomac. 
Gotcha. It's out around Bur- Burkittsville, I think, right? Somewhere roughly. Yes, Maryland? if anybody knows where yeah, Burkittsville is. Yeah, I'm pulling out some weird local <laughs> Washington County You're knowledge such a on map that one. Guy. You really, I have, I, she I, always makes fun of me. I'm always in here looking. If I ever tell a story, I always pull up Google Maps like immediately and just and have to show where it's in, at. And here it is. And here's the porch. And here's the yeah, absolutely. So it's good to orient where it is or where where that headquarters was. So continue your story. How long did it become, or was it um, a really a headquarters? Yeah, so Elix had tremendous plans. They were looking to build some 200 buildings. They were going to do retirement center for retired Elks, um, a swimming pool and tennis courts and dorms for literacy programs over the summertime. Of course, at that point in the early 1950s, now Store College is still running. So Mm. there's a nice connection with that. And they started building buildings, uh, several cabins, and they built that auditorium pretty quickly. I'm not exactly sure, but I would say by the summer of 1951, that was up and running. And so a local man, an entrepreneur, uh, John Bishop, who uh, after he ended up getting hurt in World War II, going to the hospital, the VA hospital, and then meandering over towards Charlestown, where he met probably the most eligible bachelorette there, Sylvia Rideout Bishop, was the first African-American female a registered thoroughbred horse trainer in the United States over at the Charlestown Racetrack. And these two entrepreneurs get married. They run a few little things there in, primarily in Charlestown. But as an elk, Mr. Bishop then said to the organization, hey, you got that big auditorium, in it, and I, I'm booking some bands into my clubs, but if I could rent the auditorium there, that would really be wonderful. And so from that point on, he began to book in the giants of R&B. I'll back up just a little bit. There was a segregated beach in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, back in the day, whites and blacks didn't even swim in the ocean or the, the bay together. And so they had there on Sunday afternoons, they had uh, the, the giants of R&B, like Count Basie and, and people of that stature, would play these three o'clock Sunday afternoon gigs. And the booking agent over there, Rufus Mitchell, was buddies with the local man here, John Bishop. And so he would sometimes say, hey, John, uh, I've got little Richard coming in on Hmm. Sunday afternoon. He doesn't have a Saturday night gig. Do you want him? Wow. And so that was the connection, those two booking agents working together. And there was an auditorium on on this property? Yes. Wow. Yeah. It's roughly 50 by 120 feet or something like that. Could hold four or 500 people. And so Mr. Bishop starts booking these bands in here. And early on, he's booking big stuff. I mean, Eartha Kitt, Fats Domino. And I'll just give you the list of the people who have appeared there. Uh, Ray Charles, Ike and Tina Turner, Marvin Gaye, The Coasters, The Drifters, Aretha Franklin, just on and on and on. Now, on. as you said, race relations back then, as everybody knows, weren't good. So in an area like this where they probably weren't, or were probably a little worse in more places in the country, how did this go on? I mean, how did the you know local community take part to it? Did they not know it was happening? Did the Black Elks keep it kind of quiet for the most part? I mean, because these are big, nationally known. Was this was on the Chitlin circuit, right? Yes. So, did uh, people from Hagerstown and Martinsburg and Charlestown come to these shows? Was it open to the public, or was it mainly a quiet community? And thing? was it segregated? Yeah, all of those things actually. So, <laughs> it, it was open to the public. There were almost always were some white people there. Mm-hmm. The dancers, the young people, typically maybe as young as seventeen and up through early thirties. And they came from a six, literal 6,000-square-mile 6, area on a weekly basis. Wow. So Front Royal, Virginia, to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, over to D.C. and Baltimore, coming on a consistent basis. Um, 
And so the dances sometimes would start right after dark. Sometimes they would start at midnight. So if one of these big stars had a big gig somewhere unpacked up, they would come here and they would put up globe posters, uh, globe out of Baltimore, mm-hmm. these multicolored R&B, hard rock, rock and roll posters. They would put them up on telephone poles and barbershops and all the black communities. Um, I was trying to see how many black communities were within driving distance of John Brown's farm. And if you go all the way from the fairly big communities of Frederick and Charlestown Ransom down to the little white spots in the road, there were well over 100 black communities that fed these young dancers into these dances. Mm-hmm. And at first it was frustrating for me because I wanted to hear about the artists. And there were remarkably few anecdotes at first. I thought, what's going on here? Well, there were adult beverages, so maybe some uh. people didn't remember <laughs> that kind of thing. But it turned out that the real answer was those young black kids didn't think they were going to a concert. They thought they were going to a dance. And they almost didn't care who it was. But you've got the emerging stars of what has turned out to be the world's youth music. So in 1947, you go back to Billboard magazine, they were calling this race music Mm -hmm. because that's what black people were calling it. But they changed it to R&B. And then I just saw the Winter Olympics just a couple of years ago in Korea. K-pop is American R&B. Yeah. So it, in one generation, this music where you've got these all these local kids from around here are going and egging on these mega, what became mega stars. And it finally occurred to me, I grew up in central Illinois. So I'm thinking the best young dancers in the world have got to be those kids from South Philly on bandstand. But I'm convinced now it was the black kids from around here because they were hearing, sometimes hearing James Brown's next hit. Wow. Wow. And it may have had a beat that didn't have a dance attached to it. Okay, could you imagine? Can you imagine just being no, a fly on the wall well. on any weekend there? Again, we're talking with Ed Meliskis, author of uh, John Brown to James Brown. And you said you're from central Illinois. How did you even hear about this story? Because I'm from Hagerstown, and it took me until like four years ago to know that this story even existed. Well, I was kind of in a good position to, to, once I heard the story, to do something about it. I was a history major at the University of Illinois, and I played in an interracial soul band, Eddie and the Sensations. And so we played some of this music. Can we find any uh, any of your tracks out there? Uh, I might be able to remix some. <laughs> <laughs> so we, after uh, 20 years in Miami, Florida, came up to Hagerstown uh, February 1st, 2008. We didn't have any winter clothes. So my <laughs> wife is shopping at a consignment shop owned by two uh, black twin sisters. And uh, while my wife was shopping in there, the, one of the husbands was minding the shop and a uh, radio was playing. And playing oldies and played like a James Brown song. And I mentioned to this guy, I said, you know what? I, I was in a band. We played that James Brown jam there. And then a little bit later, a Temptation song came out. And I said, yeah, we played that too. And he said, you know what? I said, I bet you really would have loved a music scene at John Brown's farm. Really? And so I thought about that and thought, that is a really weird sentence that man just said. So I said, is this Anyway, this is John Brown, the abolitionist. He said, I have no idea. We called it John Brown's farm. But I'm thinking, if this is John Brown, the abolitionist, and a century later, the top stars of R&B are playing on this same obscure little property, because he couldn't even tell me where it was. He wasn't sure if it was a barn, an auditorium, where it was, anything. And it's in the middle of nowhere. And oh, I, yeah. the first time I tried to find it, I couldn't find it with a map. I and I think have, even now it just has a little sign on the side of the road and you would miss it if you weren't looking for it. Yeah, and for a long time it just said the Kennedy Farm. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, it's that. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. So he told me about the story. I went 
think, home thinking, well, I'll just look this up on the internet. And there wasn't a word of it. Mm-hmm. I went to the local library, not a word. I went to Herald Mail, couldn't find anything. So I thought, well, <laughs> I wonder if this is a real story. Right, just a little hearsay. So I started poking around, found out that there was, was a real deal, found more and more anecdotes. And then it was coming up on the 150th anniversary of the raid and back in 2009. So I asked the Herald Mail, I said, there's a story here. All things being equal, if I write it well, would you include it? And they said, yes. Yeah. So I started working on the thing, doing a few more interviews, handed it in a couple of weeks before uh, the anniversary of the raid. And then they didn't print it and they didn't print it. And so I called over there to the contact and Chris Copley at the time and said, Chris, you know, if you don't, if you don't print this now, it's really going to become kind of passe. And he said, Ed, we are going to print it. But I tell you, we weren't going to because we started asking around and going through our files and we couldn't find a word of it. Mm-hmm. So to get back to your, your question there, it's sort of a loose lips sinks ships things. And I think the black community thought this is almost like paradise. This is run by a black entrepreneur in a black property. It's policed by black deputy sheriffs. Uh, there's kids coming from all over. It's just uh, almost like a paradise. So it was like, this stuff's just better left unsaid. And that's why it was buried for so long. And I tell you, if I and, and my wife, Judy, hadn't come along and started researching this, it would be impossible to reconstruct. A good third of the 125 uh, older African-Americans that I interviewed have died. Mm-hmm. And, wow. and I only heard this story once. And had somebody else heard the story, I don't yeah. think they would have made the connection. So my newest contention is this is far and away the number one black history site in the United States. And it's just a matter of making these three pieces of the story, the Civil War piece, the Civil Rights piece, and the R&B piece. If somebody says, oh, my word, all three, those are really important things. And they, they're all historically connected. And the story just really needs to be told. So I thank you for the opportunity this morning. Absolutely. And as you said, there were some pretty big names, some heavy hitters that were performing there. I mean, James Brown, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye. Uh, do you have any good, juicy stories? I mean, from what, you, from what it sounds like, it's been few and far between trying to get stories about uh, people performing here. But do you have any good stories that uh, you think would be willing to share? There's a couple of good ones. Um, both of them, uh, off the top of my head, involve Ike and Tina Turner. <laughs> they definitely like to party a little bit. Do and Ike drove his band very hard, and mm-hmm. so they played there several times. Um, the dancers from this area, and I, I, can I get, just give you a list of the people yeah. that I interviewed that I know are from around here? Sure. I know a few of them have died, but there's Alfred Baylor, Jim Taylor, Sylvia Stanton, Diane Puller Williams, Ruth McDaniel, Jean Lee Roberts, Janet Jeffries, Ethelene Clinton, Lawrence Bailey, Daniel Jackson Jr., Freddie Lee Gardan, Gloria Puller Johnson, Dora Roy Yates. And uh, Leonard Cooper. And uh, let's see, refresh me. Um, I sort of lost my train of thought. Oh, uh, just asking. I kind of lost my train. Oh, any uh, interesting stories? Oh, we're yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, Ike yeah. and Tina Turner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> we're back. We're back. We're back. So um, several of these people said, we made Tina Turner. And I thought, well, I'm looking back. Historically, she had some hit records with Ike before that. What do you mean you made her? Said, the Tina Turner you see now on TV, that wasn't what we saw when she first came here. We egged her on, and she started dancing harder and singing grittier. and Got out of her box a little bit. Got out of her box so that the the Tina Turner that we just got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a couple days ago, they they say they made her. Wow. But one time she was performing, I can Tina, they're taking a break, uh, and there was a woman up in Hagerstown whose father was one of the deputy sheriffs. So she was a little bit young to be there, but she was there with her dad, and there was some thumping and bumping back in the dressing room and they 
pushed the door open. Sure enough, Ike was jacking Tina up against the wall and slapping her around pretty good. And this uh, deputy sheriff intervened and grabbed Ike by the shoulder and pinned him up against the wall. And he said, here, I'm, if you want to slap somebody, slap me. Hmm. And so one of those vaunted stories that you hear about the, the violence there between Ike and Tina Turner, that's it. there's documentation right here on our doorstep. Wow. Again, Ed Maliskis, author of John Brown to James Brown. Uh, can you let everybody know how they can uh, learn more about you and your story and maybe where they can find copies of your book? Yeah, thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Amazon.com for sure. So it's uh, John Brown to James Brown, the little farm where Liberty budded, blossomed, and boogied, uh, alluding to the three pieces of that story. And then there's a companion volume, The Family Tree of R&B, that has to do with how America's popular music evolved into R&B there right around 1960 or so. So um, Turn the Page Bookstore in Boonesboro has it. Um, Four Seasons in Shepherdstown has it. Um, the bookstore at Harper's Ferry has it. So a number of ways to glom onto it. And it's a great, great story. Very cool. And again, thank you for coming in and talking. It, this has been an interesting story to me for a long time. And it's nice to, I guess, finally meet the person that I've heard about it from History for detective. so long. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. But, you know, it's easy to forget or to look over how historic this area is on many different levels. But then to get, you know, kind of a sub- subject like this that you're not expecting to hear is very interesting. So thank you again for coming in and speaking with us a little bit. I'm going to be glad to be here. Appreciate it. <laughs> Stick around for more on Panhandle Live on WEPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Welcome back to Panhandle Live. Here are your hosts, Jordan Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back to Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton & Janelle, full-service law firm serving West Virginia and Maryland, helping individuals, families, businesses with all their legal needs. Visit their historic location at 224 West King Street or online at suttonandjanelle.com. I'm Jordan Ice Warner. Alongside me is Marsha Kavalik. And if you just missed it, we had in studio Ed Maliskis, author of John Brown to James Brown, a incredibly interesting story about civil rights and music and really just history here in the Panhandle area. Who would have even known you know, you see all those signs and it's, you know, you think, oh, this is Civil War. This is John right. Brown, the that abolitionist. you just drive by all the time and don't even think to stop and that look. That was a hopping place. I know. And it, like I was saying, I mean, I grew up, what, 20 minutes away from the place and mm-hmm. didn't even know any of this history existed. Other than, of course, the John Brown raid part. I mean, I, I kind of knew all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of the music and then the civil rights aspect of stuff, had no idea. And if it wasn't for people like Ed that kind of just stumble into things like this, uh, as he was saying, they'd be lost to history. Well, and he drilled down on it, too, which is something that, you know, a lot of us, which, well, isn't that nice? That's interesting. Have a nice day. But he he dug into it. And unfortunately, he said about a third of the people that he had interviewed have, have passed on. But to me, it's fascinating that there are still so many people out there regionally mm-hmm. that know about this place that knew about it that interacted there and if you think about it i mean the 50s they were you know they're long gone now right but they're really not that far away right so i mean james brown and uh ray charles and marvin gay i mean having them count basie i know fats domino having them (laughs) playing some of their first shows or before they got big or playing Mm -hmm. new music right here uh, just in a little cabin out in the woods is crazy interesting to me who'd have thought there are stories out there. You know, there are so many stories. Then he so was talking stories. about Patsy Cline. We used our little, uh, uh, our nice little tidbit for the our studio banner. with mm-hmm. our banners. And Patsy Cline posed with them back in the day. And he was saying how uh, Patsy Cline might have performed out there. All kinds of different things. So, yeah, if if you're listening and you know someone who uh, took part in some of those 
amazing dances at the John Brown Farm. Um, you know, contact us via our Facebook page. That's right. And if you missed any of the conversations today, especially uh, at the start of the show with Berkeley Morgan County Health Department's nursing director, Angie Gray, we were talking about the mega vaccination clinic and the different CDC guidelines and whatnot. I was out in public in a uh, larger crowd. Of course, it was outside and we all mm-hmm. we were all socially distanced, but uh, sans mask. And did that it feel was, weird? You know, it did. It really did, especially walking into the place, went to a brewery down Winchester Way, met some friends and um, walking in, of course, had my mask on. We on our masks on, but I'm looking around and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of people in here. And I'd say the average age was 30, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, man, there's a lot of people in here without masks. And then uh, we got walked outside, of course, and hardly anybody did being out in the open sure. air. But yeah, it was it felt like a, a, a normal life weekend but it mm-hmm. was a little weird feeling like you're riding without your training wheels a bit a little bit yeah. i felt it felt like it was people were looking at me like why do you have a mask on but then if you took the mask off people would be like why don't you why don't you have a mask on okay let's just normalizing not judging people about <laughs> their let's normalize not judging people about their mask choices you know there were about a, a third of the people in church yesterday that still had masks on and you know People have their reasons. Absolutely. And so let them, you know, and as a matter of fact, I hear a lot of people, I'm, I'm going to get on a soapbox. Absolutely. I, I hear people on Facebook, like criticizing, this was back months ago, criticizing people for riding around with their in mask. their car with their masks on. If you've ever gotten behind the Valley Proteins truck, <laughs> you'll understand why it's good to have a mask in your car. And that Absolutely. is all I'm going to say about that. Well, all right. <laughs> hey, that works for me. It's better than me ranting about something random. <laughs> About bikes or some bike stuff, lanes and stuff, stuff like that. Thanks. Let me just say. <laughs> but that was uh, part of our conversation from the first half of the show today with Ber- Berkeley and Morgan County Health Department's nursing director, Andy Gray. And then, of course, uh, before the last break, we were talking to Ed Meliskis, from John, author of From John Brown to James Brown. If you missed any of that, it's going to be over on our Facebook page. Just search Panhandle Live a little bit later on today. Um, and later this week, we're going to have uh, U.S. Senator Shelley Moore Capito on. Mm, so she's be been a, in the news a lot recently. Oh, yeah, that'll be a really interesting that conversation. That will be a fun one. I'm sure we can get her uh, talking about, get her fired up talking about all kinds of different stuff, especially nowadays. Okay. So we'll see. Anyways, uh, yeah, if you missed any of it, it's going to be on our Facebook page. Uh, and for Marsh Kavalik, I'm Jordan Icewarner. This has been Panhandle Live on WPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network.
AM Martinsburg and WCST Berkeley Springs. This is the Panhandle News Network, a West Virginia Radio Corporation station. 